Welcome back to the Music History Project. Today is part two of our series on gospel music. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Music History Project. We are your hosts. I'm Dan Del Fiorentino. I am Suzanne Del Fiorentino. And I'm Alex Rosner. All of the content of our podcast is based on the Oral History Collection, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. This collection is over 5,000 interviews and growing. To learn more, check it out on nam.org library. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Music History Project. Today we are focused on gospel music in this, our second part of the series. We're really excited because again, we have the pre-production work of my son, Jonah. Welcome, Jonah. Thanks for all the help. Hello, of course. This is exciting because uh, we have two people, one of which is kind of near and dear to you, I understand. Yes, we're kind of blood related. <laughs> uh, Cheryl Del Fiorentino is my grandma. So, yep. It was really cool because I did the interview with Suzanne and I sat down and said, I usually say, oh, may I call you you know, by your first name as opposed to your last name. And this time I just said, so may I call you mom? Mm -hmm. This was a really important interview for me because not only is she my mother, but she was a greatest influence musically, uh, especially in my early years, just giving me the direction and passion for music that she has. And when I was thinking about, you know, our, the oral history program at NAM doesn't really have a piano teacher who taught themselves by ear and now teaches someone to read music, all her students to read music. I thought that would be a really interesting uh, perspective to have. And I think that because I had a great example in my life, my mom. I couldn't think of anybody else, so I interviewed my mom. So that's how she got into the collection. And I hope that it's going to be meaningful to you to hear some of her passion uh, for music and some of the uh, techniques she has uh, not only developed, but taught over the years to encourage others to be music makers. As far back as I can remember, I've loved to want to play the piano and I didn't have a piano to play. So I would make shift pianos. When, when we would write every Sunday, we would go out to a farm to have fried chicken. And on the way we would listen to music. And my place in the car was in the back seat behind dad. And my sister was on the other side. And when the music would come on, I would put my hands up on the uh, back seat of his car, of his of the car, and he would I play along. Pretty soon he'd say, Cheryl Ray, stop that. It's driving me crazy. And I, I would say, Well, I want a piano. Well, you're not gonna get one. So um, when I was 10, it was my job after school to go over to my to the babysitter's house and pick up my sister and then we would come back to the house and we were like the first latchkey kids because mother didn't come home for 30 minutes after we got home so we were going down the driveway going up the driveway to the house and mrs bauer across the street called and said um cheryl uh your dad had a dental appointment today and he's not feeling well why don't you just come over and play with us with my kids until I, um, till your mother comes home. And I said, okay. So Terry and I went across the street and Mrs. Bower's son played the accordion. And the accordion case was the shape of the accordion. So he was playing the accordion and I put the case down and I was playing along with him. So I, I liked, I guess I just had music in my heart. The phone rang and Mrs. Bower said, your mom's home. Now we had a long driveway and a long porch. So we went up the driveway and we went up the porch and it was a long porch. And mother was standing on the porch with the screen door open. And the door, of course, was open. And she, Terry ran and mother grabbed her and held on to her until I came up. And I walked in the front door and over at Kitty Corner was this big piano with a big red bow. They had bought me a piano, and that was when I was 10. But 
um, piano was expensive, and so we couldn't um, have lessons. But she did ask a, a teacher, a, an instructor, to come and just see if I really, really had a talent. So the, the instructor sat with me for, I don't remember, she said about 30 minutes he sat with me, and um, then he, they sent me out to play, and he told my mom that I definitely had a gift, and it was too bad that I couldn't have lessons. So I didn't let that stop me. I wanted to learn to play that piano that was in my living room now. So I had a little suitcase record player. In those days we had, and it was a 45, and it had a little disc, and I put the disc in, and then I put the, the record, and then I turned on the, um, and put the needle on, and I would sit and plunk until I could find the note that matched the one on the, on the record, and then I'd add, and I'd get the melody, and then I'd fill in with whatever I thought was possible. And I learned to play the piano like that, so I played by ear. When I was 14, I joined a youth group, and they needed a pianist. And um, I, they said, Cheryl, you um, play the piano. Could you play for youth group? And I said, huh, well, I said, I don't read notes, but if you can hum it, I can play it. And that's how I started in the youth group, playing the piano for actual service. And I had five girlfriends, well, actually four, I was the fifth. <laughs> and we did everything together. And Barbara Bruner was, was one of my friends, and her mother was play the accordion at church. And one day she, on one Sunday, she said, Cheryl, um, can you stay after church for just a minute? and talk to me, and I said, sure. I said, besides, I said, Barbara just invited me to lunch, so I'm coming to your house, so I've got as much time as you've got. <laughs> and she said, I'd like to show you what you're playing. And I said, okay. And so we sat down at the piano, and she asked me to play a piece, and I absolutely don't remember the piece. But she said, look at what you, stop right there with that chord. And I said, okay. So I still had it on, on with my hands on it. And she said, that's the key of F. And now what other chord do you use when you're playing this song? And I started to play a little bit more. And she said, that's the key. That's a C. That's a chord C. And she says, is there another chord? And I said, yes. And so we played a little bit. And, she, and I did another chord. And she, she said, that's B flat. So those are the chords in, in the key of F. And then we went to C. And we went to G. And we did a B flat. And I learned those chords. And so then the song leader at church would say, um, let's play, let's sing such and such in the key of F, Cheryl. And I said, okay. I knew the song, so I played it in the key of F because I knew where key F was now. So that's how I started. And then when I was 18, I was able to get lessons. And, um, and I took from a, a really nice lady and I remember we had a recital, and I was to play Traumerei, which is um, a nice, kind of a classical piece, and I was so nervous. I was so nervous, and all the students were playing their songs, and it was my turn, and I played, and I played it really good, and I sat down, and she said, you did good, but you left out one section. <laughs> I was just a little nervous, so from there... Um, I kept taking piano lessons, and um, I just played for church as much as I could. And um, then I started getting students, people, women, the mothers. My first, my first students was a friend of mine who had kids, and I, and I wanted a piano teacher for my kids, David and Paula. And so um, we switched. There was no money crossed, but we were able to have our kids have piano lessons. And I did that, and I had four or five other students. This was in Minnesota. And so I just kept it up, and I kept playing. And then my big, big thing was um, cantatas. So uh, the church was big, and we had a big choir. And uh, John Peterson was um, a music, uh, composer of Christian concerts. 
and cantatas was what they were called. And they asked me to play that cantata so that the choir could sing it. Oh boy. I thought, okay, well, I'll try. I'm telling you, I must have spent five hours a day practicing to make sure that I could play that piece. So it came time for the cantata. And I walked up to the piano and I sat down and I got cold and then I got hot and then I started to shake and I thought, oh Lord, you're going to have to help me with this. And I put my hands on the keyboard and started playing and I, I made it through that whole cantata. I probably had a couple little foopas, but I didn't stop. And that's, and then I've just been playing for weddings and, and whenever I, that's what I do. But one of the things that I do right now, I have great-grandchildren that live in Minnesota. And I live in Idaho. And so we use Skype, and I've been teaching those three um, piano lessons for three years via Skype. And their mother must have really told them that I should be thanked. And every single time we finish a lesson, Lily will say, Grandma Nani, Thank you so much for my lesson. And Cash will do the same thing, and so will Brooke. <laughs> so you basically learned the piano by ear, mm -hmm. but learned how to read. Mm -hmm. And so by the time you started giving lessons, what approach did you have for your students, or what method did you use? Well, um, in the very beginning was John Thompson. <laughs> Everybody learned from John Thompson. So book one. <laughs> but um, later I was introduced to Jane Bastian, and um, now it's just Bastian um, pieces, and that's what I teach from mostly. And um, the older students or adults, I teach from uh, Alfred, adult, all-in-one book. And it has the theory and all kinds of stuff in there, you know, for how to learn and that sort of stuff. Why did you gravitate towards Bastion? Was there anything in particular about that method? Well, John Thompson kind of went away. Mm. And um, I would sign up at, at music stores and as a teacher, and then I would get invitations to um, seminars. I'd go to the music store, and all the teachers would be there. And then they would introduce their, the different publishers would introduce their product. And I just liked Jane Bastian. It was it's easy to follow, and and it's precise. It's easy for them. And now they've just, well, not just, but they came out with an all-in-one, which is the theory and this everything else in there as well. So I like that a lot. Awesome. That's really cool. I'm always wanting to learn, and so somebody told me about Cindy, and. So I walked up to her, oh no, I heard her play at chapel one day. And um, I walked up to her afterwards and I said, do you teach lessons? She says, well, what do you want to know? And I said, well, I want to play evangelistic style. And she said, okay, I can teach you. So the very first lesson, this was fun. She gave me um, a piece of music and she... Um, I knew the music, so she said, play it for me, and so I played it, and then she said, okay, now I want to show you what you can do with this piece of music, and she introduced me to listening to, to put in minor keys, minor chords, and all kinds of different things, and arpeggios, and that's evangelistically styled, and you just, you have kind of a beat to it, and so it's, it was fun, and I learned a lot, and when I would go someplace and listen to music or be in a church that I wasn't playing at, um, I'd go, oh, she could have used that chord. Or, you know, I, I knew I was, had, she had trained, Cindy had trained my ear to listen for changes that you could use to enhance the piece. And I love that. And I use that today all the time. Who's Cindy? She was at Bethany Bible College. Oh, okay. I don't remember her last name. But she was a pianist. She wasn't really a teacher. She, she just... Oh, gotcha. Mm -hmm. And then you moved to Bloomington, Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And there was some missionettes hanging out there. 
There was. You should explain what that program is. Missionettes was a girls' program, and they had different clubs for the different ages, and um, kindergarten was daisies, and preschool was rainbows, and it, it all didn't come at once. It was just a progress, you know, and then daisies, prim, rainbows, daisies, prims, stars, and that was it for then. And it's grown since then, of course. But um, I became the fun and stuff lady. And what I did was I went into each one of the classrooms at a given time, and they would have singing, and I would play for them while they sang. And when um, I went into, this was a little later, it was when I was in Idaho now. And um, so I skipped California, but <laughs> we'll, maybe we can go back to that. I, Anyway, um, I went into the Rainbows class. I was the fun and stuff lady there, too. And I went into the, the Rainbows class, and I had a keyboard. And I thought, I'm not going to put it on a stand. So I put it on the floor, and they'd sit on the keyboard and sing with me. <laughs> it was kind of fun. Sounds really fun. You were with that organization an awful long time. I was a missionette from the time I was 14. Um, and it was just, it was an after-school program for, high, well, high school, junior high and high school girls. And um, Mrs. Mayo was my leader. It was at a time when we were wrapping bandages for soldiers. And she taught us how to make fruitcake, and we'd have class. And um, then when I was 19, I became a, a leader in, in missionettes. I knew a lot about teaching piano by then, but I just wanted wanted to know what I knew, you know. And so um, I found this ad in the paper. It didn't say who the teacher was. It just said it was $12 a lesson for 30 minutes. And, you know, it was, we were raising kids, and it wasn't easy to get an extra $12, <laughs> but, but we did it. And so I went to the, to the house where uh, this teacher was, and his name was Vladimir Poleshikov. And he was a concert pianist from Russia and France. And um, he and his wife had two nine-foot grand pianos in their studio. Oh, it was like an auditorium. It was beautiful. And they played like nobody could play. I mean, it was just beautiful. But so we sat down at the piano, my first lesson. He says, tell me, Cheryl. What do you want to learn? And I said, well, I just want to, I want theory. I want to know what I'm, what I'm teaching, not just, not just the notes, but I want to know. And so he says, well, just play me something and tell me what you're playing. So I played something, and I, by this time I knew chords, <laughs> and I knew minor chords, and I played something. I don't remember what it was. And I said, so... They asked me some questions then, and he looked at me and he said, you know more than you think you know. I thought, oh, that's good, but I want to know more. <laughs> so he taught me for six months, and then they decided to go back to Europe and be on concert tours again. So I only had him for six months, but that was good. You're listening to the Music History Project, if you want to see the interviews that uh, the Music History Project podcast is based on, go to nam.org slash library. So we interviewed Dan's mother, Cheryl Del Fiorentino, in February 22 in Boise, Idaho. And I let her tell her stories because they're really interesting. And she's been teaching children for a very long time, um, not to age her, and always very involved in her church and other churches playing every Sunday every wake and wedding. Um, and I also want to encourage you to go and watch her interview because she plays at the end of it. And she has a very um, stylized flair mm -hmm. with her fingers on the keyboard. It was just really kind of fun to see her come alive and watch her play. So if nothing else, fast forward through it and watch the end of the interview. I hope you enjoy. Jonah, what's up next? So next we're going to uh, 
listen to Cheryl, or I'm just going to say Nani because that's what I call her, <laughs> but um, we're just going to listen to Nani talk about a really uh, sentimental story about one of her students. His name is Nicholas, and I think I just felt so connected to this story. I'm not Nicholas at all, but I... I actually want to be a teacher. Um, that's what I've always wanted to be. And I also love music so much, which is kind of weird because it's like my dad's a part of the music industry. <laughs> it's almost like it's connected or something. But um, so I just really felt very inspired because, well, I don't want to spoil it, but seeing your student grow and flourish because of what you did, that's like the goal of an objective of a teacher. And also just anyone that gives any advice that's what you just want to see the person that you gave advice do so let's hear about nicholas nicholas um lives behind us well he lived behind us he's not there anymore <laughs> he's married he's got a baby but um he came to me with his mother and he was seven years old and um they he was his father was in the military so they had been moved around a lot but they were he was going to retire here, so they stayed here. And so they asked at Welch Music um, if there was any teachers in their vicinity, in their area. And they found me, and they called me on the phone, and they asked if they could come for an interview. And I said, absolutely. So we sat in this living room right here. And um, he had been, it was kind of a Montessori-type uh, teaching that he'd been in for like maybe six months, but then they moved and and so, but she wanted him in, in a regular piano teacher. So that's what we started. And we did Bastion. It was Jane Bastion at the time. But this kid was amazing. He was already trying to write his own music. He had it in his head and he would write it and or play it for me and, but he'd always do his lessons. And I had him until he was 17, and he played um, a violin at the orchestra in his school, in the high school, and the conductor wanted, knew that Nicholas played the piano, and by this time, he was pretty dang good. <laughs> and um, so uh, she gave him this piece of music, and it was way beyond me, I mean, I'm a beginner teacher and kind of an intermediate, but I can't go beyond advanced. I can't go too advanced. I'm just not that. I'm just not that good. So um, I told him that I would help him as much as I could, but um, I wasn't. I wasn't helping enough. And so the conductor said that she knew um, this. Uh, the director of music at BSU. Um, Dale Parkinson, I believe that's his name. Um, they, the conductor sent Nicholas there, and he played the piece for him. And he said, um, you know, Nicholas, I think I could help you. I'd love to be your teacher. <sighs> Wait was off. Of, well, not at the moment. So he came the next Monday night was his lesson night. He came and he sat in that chair, and he said, <clears throat> Miss Cheryl, I think um, I'm going to have to, to stop my lessons here because Dale Parkinson has offered to be my teacher. I was thrilled. I had asked the, the parents many times, find him a teacher that can keep him going. Well, we did it that way instead. But So he graduated high school, married his high school sweetheart, went to BSU, and he majored in music. He got his master's in music, and I was at. His, and every time he had a recital, I I was invited, and um, they were like finals for the. They didn't call them recitals; they called them finals, because it was a grade. He was getting a grade, and I got to go to his very last final recital, and he had to he had to write the music, and have everybody play those pieces. And so they recorded an orchestra of his, of his music, and um, and then he played several things, and he played a marimba, and he, he just played everything. And today he is 
teaching piano. He has his own studio, and he has about 65 students, and I couldn't be prouder. Dan, that was quite a surprise listening to your mom. <laughs> yes, she is very passionate. And when people say, Dan, how did you become so passionate about music? I'm just going to point them to the NAM Oral History interview uh, with her because that's definitely her drive for sure in life is uh, making music and encouraging and teaching other people to make music for sure. So I'm glad, Jonah, that you... Uh, you picked this interview and, and went through it for our pre-production of this podcast because it does fit in nicely with the gospel music theme. And along with that is another interesting story for me, and that is the, the vocalist Betty Wright, who grew up in a very gospel home. Um, in fact, she started singing with the family when she was just two years old. They formed a group called Echoes of Joy. I love that name. And she sang with them until I think she was um, 11 years old on radio and at different churches. They sort of traveled around and um, sang music, gospel music. But when she was a teenager, she, as she says it, um, she looked at an alternative to music. And this wasn't necessarily a... Um, acceptable format of music having a background in gospel, and that was rhythm and blues um, or soul music. Uh, she got some criticism for it, but what's interesting to me is she went down that path. She recorded a couple of really big hits, which we're going to hear about, but always she had her eye and her heart in gospel music, and she continued to sing in a church. She continued to record religious music. So I think this is an important story to tell. Um, and it was also uh, very sentimental for me because I interviewed her in April uh, 2017 in Miami, Florida, where she passed away in 2020. Um, completely unexpected to me. She, I later learned that she had cancer, but only at 66 years old, it was just a shock. And so I'm so grateful for this interview. And so with that, I hope you'll listen intently to uh, the great message that she gives and the passion that she has for music. My passion, yeah, it definitely came from gospel. And it still is. When I want to get revved up, there is no greater music than gospel music to get you out of whatever you're going through. I always can find one of those old songs and, and just play it and it just makes me feel better. Aretha when she was singing gospel and just different, you know, it could be a song that isn't really even a, um, a popular song. And I love to hear Elvis Presley sing gospel too. The little wave, not little wave, big wave in his voice. And um, songs like How Great Thou Art. You know, when you look at the big scheme of things, not just you being this big star, but that there's somebody so big that it makes you look like the tip of a pinhead and you should be grateful and you should honor this. And when you do this music, do it with the zest and the love and the fervor that someone with passion does and not like collect a check. Oh yeah, go two steps, collect a check, go to the next city, collect a check, but that you should love, really love what you're doing. And that I respect. That's very cool. So did you start writing songs as a young girl? I think I wrote my first song when I was four. And my mom kept it in a little black and white composition book. I was always rhyming. I was always aware of rhyming. And I would say things like, I like climbing trees. I like dangling keys. I would make it rhyme. But I was more of a poet than a songwriter. And I was probably more poet than a singer. I think I learned to sing years after I had hit records. I could mimic what a singer is singing, but I was always a writer. I could always get the story and, and, and write a, a hit song. But I just, uh, I grew into it. When I went to college, I didn't go and take vocals as a vocal student. I was a percussion major. So I always hear the rhythm before I hear the, the vocal. But I, I learned because I kept at it. And a lot of people will say, oh, you know, your voice and all these octaves. But it's because I didn't put any limitation on it. I looked at it as I look at any instrument. And I just kept thinking, the more I do it, the better it's going to get. It's like if you don't practice on your instrument. Now, there are some people that are born, and they're just a prodigy. They just come here playing. 
God bless them. I could do that with writing. I'm a wordsmith. I can always find words. I can always find something to talk about. And some people talk because they want to have say, something to say. But I talk because I have something to say. So I've always been like preacher, teacher, communicator, uh, skills organizer. I could always find who should go with who to make this happen. I could put musicians together. I could hear it in my head. So it was just a matter of getting what was in my head out into the air, out into the atmosphere. And I just think when you're passionate, you know, it just comes out differently. Somebody could actually have a more perfect note than you. But if you sing it with passion, it'll be your growl that gets it over. Or maybe the imperfection, you know. And uh, once Usher told me, say, Ma, when you, when, when you die, they're going to have to pry that microphone out of your hand. I said, what make you think they're going to get it then? <laughs> so I, 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 I'm passionate about it. And I think that at my age, if I were not, I'd do something else. Because I'm going into my 51st year as a professional R&B singer and my 60th year as a gospel singer. So I still love it, I, still, I yet do it. What was the first instrument that you played? The very first instrument was guitar because it was there. We didn't have a piano, we had guitars. And obviously because it was cheaper. So I would just strum a little bit. And then I played extensively at 12 and then Almost not at all for about four years. But I think it was because all the boys played so well. And I was just like, eh. But to write my songs, I still play on guitar or piano. But I love drums. Most of my shows, I play a little drum. Every now and then a little guitar, but drums. You're listening to The Music History Project. And as we're continuing to talk about Betty Wright, there is something that I just have to talk about. <laughs> and that is... The idea that she started, she loved gospel music and saying it, but also she delved into non-Christian music. And I just have a lot of thoughts. I'm not going to say all of them, of course, but just for me, I was, I just loved hearing her talk about this um, because there's, as someone that's been in the church my whole life, I have seen ranges of beliefs on this topic. Some people think you can only listen to Christian music. Some people think love songs are devil music. Some people think other songs are devil music. And she just talked about how she could sing other songs because she has other emotions. She has emotions of love. She has emotions of uh, regret, all these different things. And so you can sing things that uh, you feel connected to, and it doesn't have to be just praise music. Because yes, it's great to praise the Lord, but there's other ways to praise the Lord, and that is uh, having connections to yourself and having a healthy connection with the people around you and your own emotions. And so I just love what she was talking about, and I feel like she should uh, be preaching everywhere. Just saying. <laughs> well said. That's fantastic, Jonah. I totally agree with you. And I think it's really neat that although we remember her um, for Clean Up Woman, which was her big, big hit in the early 70s, and then she won the Grammy in 1976 for Where Is the Love? She did gospel music as well as disco music. I mean, you know, she followed her heart and her passion for music and what drove her to sing a song with that great conviction in her voice. It was whatever topic was in her heart at the time, be it religious or secular. And I think that's what made her who she was and an incredible singer with a great depth. So let's continue. We have more to learn from her. What are we going to hear about next, Jonah? We're going to hear about her talking about what her mom considered devil music, as well as some stories with some famous people such as Michael Jackson. So yeah, let's get into it. I think because we have a broader scope now, people have computers now and they realize that people that sing love songs are not the devil. I, my argument was always, oh, I could read in the Bible in the songs of Solomon and see that he could talk of his love. 
but then I can't sing about it. Now, there are some songs that I feel like they came straight, pure from the devil. Because they're not telling you anything good to do. They're not enhancing your life. Uh, they might be too violent. But I'm not about censorship. If that's who you are and that's who you want to be, I'm sure that there's somebody like you listening that's going to like that music. I prefer to sing music that has, has a light in it. and means that even if I'm telling a story, and it might not be a story you agree with, I'm going to tell something to help somebody get from Monday to Tuesday. And I think Sam Cooke put out some of the most beautiful love songs ever. But I don't think they had the revelation of Ephesians 5 where it says songs and, you know, hymns and spiritual songs. So I think they just always thought it had to be a hymn. And it had to be definitely to him. A hymn to him. They never knew that it was all right to sing a love song. But some of the greatest ministries in the world stayed strong because the marital ministry was strong. I'm sure when you get married, you're not going to sing nearer my God to thee to your wife to get married or walk down the aisle. You want to sing a love song. I love you. I want to be with you forever. So what's wrong with saying love has truly been good to me. Oh, it's so amazing. Amazing. Love brought us together, together. What's wrong with singing a Luther Vandross song? or a Betty Wright song, or somebody that sings a beautiful love song. What's wrong with that? But I do recall when there was a big pulling away because a lot of churches wouldn't pay you to play music. They skipped that part of the Bible where it said a workman is worthy of his hire. That would have kept a lot of people in church. They were so phenomenal. Somebody comes to town, they hear somebody playing some phenomenal music. It's like, hey, you need to play on my record. And eventually people left the church. They didn't leave God. They left church because church didn't have that regimented where they could earn a living. And people thought music was just a gift you give away. They, would, they could go be a teacher, but if you were a singer, they'll, you walk in a party, they don't tell the teacher, hey, why don't you come over here and teach us this theory? But if you're a singer, you walk in the door, they say, hey, come and sing us a little song. You know, so they, they, what you did was never really a J-O-B. They didn't look at it as something that was stable. They'll say, that's a hobby. That's a hobby. Well, you know, people have made gazillion dollars, and I'm on my same job. Yes, and I'll have my job in heaven, because they always talk about singing and the playing in heaven. So, yeah, don't hate on me. I got my real job. So were your parents and your church supportive to you, or did you have to go? My mom wanted to come out of her skin. She was so upset that I would sing R&B. But one thing my mom knew about me, I was basically a good kid. And if I told her I wasn't going to drink, I wasn't going to smoke, I wasn't going to do drugs, she knew that I meant that. And to this day, never indulged. So evidently, I chose the music, and the music chose me. Another thing that I'd like to talk a little bit about is um, your experiences in the recording studio. Do you remember the first time that you went, went to a recording studio? <laughs> Would you believe it? I wasn't three. And I remember it so well that my mom thought somebody had to tell me. I remember them stacking up phone books, which were about that thick. And I remember the crate, and I remember a chair. And I remember one of my brothers saying, Oh, if y'all let the baby fall, because I was on there, but I wasn't really balanced well. And I remember the glass window and two guys standing behind the glass window looking out like, what is wrong with these kids? Is this little girl going to sing? And I remember singing before I was three. And I think it was in Overtown, the, the recording studio. But then when I did my records as I got older, I remember very well. And I remember when I heard them on the radio the first time and how weird it felt, like coming out of that box, hearing your voice and saying, I sound weird, it doesn't sound like me, but understanding, you know, the mechanics of it. And as I got older, I'm a fanatic about being cut flat. Just, you know, not singing flat, but just with no extra anything. And if something needs to be added, uh, like maybe just the ambience of a room, but I will, I prefer sounding just like I'm talking. 
And that's probably why when I go on stage, they say, ooh, you sound just like your record. Yeah, because it's my speaking voice. <laughs> no pain, just like, boom, there I am. Do you have any favorite uh, stories or ones that come to mind, memories of being in a recording studio that mean something to you? Yeah, I have one in particular with Bill Wyman uh, from the Rolling Stones where it was George McCray, Gwen McCray, and me and maybe one other person, but he was playful, very playful, and I remember he kicked his foot up, you know, like playing, and it almost touched me on my backside, and I almost broke his leg. But we, we ended up being kind of cool, and I remember saying, asking him where were they going to be working that evening, and he says, work? When it gets to be work, I'm not going. Ask us where we're playing. So I remember that. So out of the dark came the light, because he was just playful. I saw that he did it to everybody after that. Guys, girls, he's like little WrestleMania. But I wasn't used to that, you know. And my best uh, story is that uh, Michael Jackson went to sleep standing up when we were doing the All I Do song with Stevie. That was different because we were waiting all night and it was going on about six in the morning. And I remember Michael said, I've never been up this late. I've never been up this late. And after a while, he just, he positioned his feet like I call duck feet and he was gone. He was asleep, standing up, knocked out. And I guess because he's so thin, he had to balance, balance his body and he was knocked out. But what a great song, right? All I do. I just still think it's one of the best songs Stevie ever did. And I was just real stoked to be a part of that. That's very, very cool. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about Clean Up Woman? Sure. How did that come about? Well, Clarence is, uh, well, he just, he's only been deceased about a year and a half now. But Clarence's mom was working for a family that had a black maid. And he says the story goes that the maid was pretty much doing everything and being a governess. So she was basically taking care of these two little kids, a little boy and a little girl. And that because the guy saw the attachment that the kids had to her, and evidently she was a pretty lady, a very, very sweet lady and a very kind lady, very quiet, he began to be kindly affectioned to her. And eventually he fell in love with her and ended up marrying her. So it was a story that his mother told him and he talked about the woman that gets the love you leave behind. It's kind of like in the Bible, uh, the sin of negligence. You know, not so much as, oh, she's coming in there being all sexy and taking your man, but that the wife just was never there to take care of the kids. So. When he wrote the song, he wanted to call it Clean Up Man, then he said Clean Up Woman, then he changed it back, he kept going back and forth. But he sang a little bit to me and I sang it back to him and then he decided that I should be the one to sing it. And I've heard 30 different stories, but that's the one he told me and that's the one that I believe. He never came back to finish the middle, so in the middle it's just a beaver playing. So I guess it was supposed to have something in there, but I think it's enough. And I think those three guitars say it all because Beaver stepped up the guitar game. Because everybody I meet talks about that. God rest him in, in peace and power. Prince, the first time he met me, he just stood back and said, the cleanup woman. He, everybody loves that song. People talk about it. Now Rogers traveled with us while we were uh, on tour. I guess he was about 17, and he loved that song. Baby, he nailed it. It's a powerful song even to this day. I do it about 80 different ways. You know, you have to keep it, keep it going. You know, after this many years, from 71 to now, you know, you got to be a little creative. So we still do it and it still gets the, the applause. You ever get sick of it? Or no, but I, I have to tell you, Clean Up Woman was not one of my favorite songs. I wasn't at the age where I was really, really that knowledgeable about a song like that. And I had sung so many songs about somebody stealing somebody's man and whatever. I just, 
I guess with Clean Up Woman, so many people wanted me to explain it, and I hadn't gotten the gist of the story yet, so I would find myself very perplexed and stuck, like, uh, well, uh, Clean Up Woman, um, you know, like in baseball, uh, you know, and I would just try to figure it out, because I knew about baseball, you know, the one that came in and took care of the whole team, but uh, eh, I think I learned to love it. It sent me and my kids and a whole lot of other people's kids to school, um, schools of higher learning. It helped me be able to move my mother out of the projects. It helped me to make a way of life that the struggles my mom had and my dad had, I didn't have. And even though I know that every, I'm still a work in progress, but every step that I take, I know that I'm closer because of that record. And I've had hits, but that record is what brought the national attention to me on that level. Well said, yeah, yeah. very true. I know I wish we had all afternoon because I love all your music. I think you do a wonderful job conveying yourself, and I think that's part of it, right? Music I think so. Yeah, and, I, and I'm, I'm really a people person. I feel that anything that we do, that we can do this long, is probably your real calling, not just your job. I feel that uh, I get stoked to do something when it's something I really love and when I see how other people love it. When I sing Clean Up Woman, if I didn't like it, I would like it watching them dance, watching the people, you know, just get so happy when I do it. But I, I certainly learned to love it. So my final topic before I cut out is um, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about some of your favorite gospel music and what that means to you. you some of my favorite gospel music, oh, I, we could take all day on that. My favorite <laughs> gospel music is from way, way, way back, Sister Rosetta Thorpe and who really is the godmother of rock and roll. No matter what they say, when you see her playing at that train station in Manchester, that's it. And when you see uh, Richard Penniman, who became Little Richard, when you see him about four or five in that movie, singing Caledonia and playing with his elbows and his fists, and you know that these people were stars from babies. Sammy Davis Jr., um, and, and they all had a little bit of that, you know, the gospel background to bring them to where they are. I love Shirley Caesar. I just think she's the storyteller of all time, her and Dorothy Norwood. And I do believe they came out of one group. They are the epitome of storytellers, uh, the late Albertina Walker. I love the Davis sisters and can't live out, leave out Aretha, even though a lot of people say queen of soul. She's just a queen of everything. She can sing opera. She can sing the phone book. She can sing the sing, you know, whatever. And I love uh, Smokey Norfolk out of the new crew. I love the Clark sisters, all of them collectively. I love Jay Moss. Uh, I love the energy of the Thai tributes and I, I love all of the choirs, Hezekiah Walker, uh, Donald Lawrence, Kirk Franklin. I love music that keeps evolving. And I think every one of them has a place. A lot of the older ones might say, well, I don't like that. That doesn't sound like gospel music. Well, it might not be for you. But let those kids listen to that. That's for them. I still like, I'm climbing up on the rough side up the mountain. It took me so long till I realized you can't really climb up on the smooth side because you can't get any kind of grip. So I ended up writing a song for, for uh, one of the, the uh, schools that I work for. I volunteer in the summer. And when I wrote the school songs for Honeyshine, that's what I implemented was that you can't climb up the smooth side of a mountain. You can't get a grip. You just slip down again. Though times may be rough, we got the right stuff to achieve because we believe. Honey shine. You know, so I think all of those songs and all of those artists, and that I don't know who all I'm leaving out, and I'm so sorry because there are so many that I really love. All of the mass choir, especially Miami mass choir, Mississippi mass choir, Triborough, 
But when you start to thinking about it, it just depends on the day because you'll be listening and you want to hear Sam Cooke sing. You'll be listening and you want to hear uh, one of the new kids uh, come out and sing Tamala Mann. Uh, there, there's just so much good gospel music. And I don't think of it as a competition. I just think of it as whatever way I wake up that morning, I want to hear uh, some good gospel music. I wake up with it every day. I wake up with it. That was Betty Wright, and that will conclude our uh, two-part series about gospel music. My final thoughts are, I just love, especially at the very end, her how, the, when she describes her favorite gospel music, I love that she included someone from most different ranges of gospel music, from older to newer ones that I listen to now, like Kirk Franklin and Tamala Mann, and it just shows that she is so well knowledge in all different generations of gospel music and how it evolves and how it changes and especially how it changes with different people, different parts uh, of, no, uh, just different uh, generations. Um, so yeah, I was, I feel so grateful just getting to hear a little bit, a little bit about what she says and her experiences. Jonah, it's so nice to listen to you and how enthusiastic you are about the gospel music and to, to hear about your opinions. I concur. I really enjoyed hearing your thoughts. That was such a fun podcast. Where did the time go? <laughs> yes, I concur um, with my colleagues. Jonah, it's a pleasure to have you helping us with these uh, pre-production. It's a lot of work, folks, to go through all these interviews and find the bits that really fit together as nicely as they do for this podcast. So, um, Jonah, thank you for your dedication and your help and your perspective. I think it's a, it's a real joy for me, for sure. So with that, we will uh, have a new podcast and a new topic for you next month. So until then, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Music History Project. This has been Dan Del Fiorentino, Suzanne Del Fiorentino, and Alex Rossner. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have ideas for future podcasts or recommendations for interviews for the Oral History Program, please send an email to library at nam.org. That's library at namm.org.